give you all a warm welcome to our service tonight. We'll begin by singing Psalm 67 from the Scottish Psalter, first version, the tune is Selma. Lord bless and pity us, shine on us with thy face, that the earth thy way and nations all may know thy saving grace. We'll stand to sing. thanks we can have our time meeting tonight. We pray that you would bless each one of us and help us as we uh, take part in this service. Most of us are um, responding and we just thank you Lord that we can respond to you, that you are the God who speaks to us, not merely to tell us things, but also to uh, get responses from us. And the responses are not only at the end, but as we go through our service, and even the psalm we have just been singing, where we pray that you would bless and pity us, we should be thankful that your pity and your blessing uh, can be immediate. And therefore we ask, Lord, that we will be sensitive and alert to the possibility of you saying something to us in a very direct and personal manner. You've done that on numerous occasions with others, 
and probably with ourselves at times as well. And we just ask you, Lord, to, to do it again, to speak to us directly, and that we would be uh, pleased to hear what you have to say. I mean, sometimes you focus on our uh, wrong actions, but other times you speak to us to comfort us, to help us, to instruct us. And therefore, Lord, we pray that you would do that as we look at your word tonight. We thank you that your word tells us about Jesus, about his life and his death, his resurrection and his ascension, his future return and all the details connected to each aspect of, uh, of these things we just mentioned. And we thank you, Lord, that everything about Jesus is, is amazing. And that's not surprising because he is a God-man. He's a real man, but he's more than a man. He's the eternal Son of God. And therefore, we should expect uh, things about him uh, to be different from what we might think would be said about other people. So, Lord, we thank you that your word opens up for us some of the features uh, of the life and ministry of Jesus. And sometimes we might be surprised at what those features are. But we pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, value them and to rejoice in them. We come to you, Lord, at the start of another week, and we pray that what we do in your own day would help us in the remaining six days of this week. In a spiritual sense, we start at the height the heights of your grace and your word, often, your word often likens your grace to a river and therefore we can take that picture and expect the river to still be flowing in the remaining days of this particular week. And we ask you, Lord, that would be the case, that it would flow in our hearts and in our minds. We thank you that uh, water is refreshing. Uh, whatever else can be said about your word, it is refreshing. And sometimes we can drink it, it just comes to our minds somewhere, and we drink it afresh and discover just how satisfying it is. So Lord, we pray that you'd be with us in the coming days and give us strength and grace for that, to be your witnesses in whatever way that's required. We pray, Lord, you remember those in the congregation who are not well, some not able to be with us here, and we pray, Lord, your blessing upon them, and bless any treatment that any of them are getting. Remember those who may be away on holiday, or those who cannot attend for other reasons, and we just pray your blessing on them all. We ask you, Lord, to bless us as families and that we would 
in that way be experiencing much uh, heavenly grace from you in all the different aspects of family life. And Lord, we do pray that you would remember uh, your church and our country and throughout the world. And also remember all the places where there are problems, there's wars, and there's famines, and there's natural disasters. And we ask you, Lord, to remember those places and individuals who are affected by them. So we pray you to be with us in our service and to remember each of us for good. And pardon us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing again to God's praise, this time from Psalm 77, and sing psalms. And we'll sing verses 13 to 20. The tune is Strath Cathro. O God, most holy are your ways, what God compares with you. You are the God of miracles, whose power the nations view. Verses 13 to 20.
Uh, we can have two readings. The first one is from Isaiah 53. And the second one is from Matthew chapter 8. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then in Matthew chapter 8, and we can read verses 1 to 17. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, 
See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And may God bless that reading. We'll now sing from Psalm 103 in the Scottish Psalter, verses uh, 1 to 5, and the tune is London New. O thou my soul, bless God the Lord, and all that in me is, be stirred up his holy name to magnify and bless. Verses 1 to 5.
can turn back to Isaiah chapter 53 and read again uh, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 4 um, begins the third division of this um, servant song that begins at verse 13 of chapter 52. And I suppose we are uh, intended to note the divisions and see if there's any connection or disconnection between them. And as we look at verse 4 and compare it to the previous verse, uh, we see that there's a very different outlook. In uh, verse uh, 3, um, the Messiah, Jesus, is called the man of sorrows. And this um, feature of him was part of the reason why, as verse 3 indicates, the people that saw him uh, despised him and rejected him. After all, who would want to keep company with somebody who was always the man of sorrows? Life would not be um, what we would want it to have someone there who was always sorrowful. Somebody for whom life just made him sad. Of course, there were lots of reasons for him being sad. He was aware of sin. He was sensitive to it. You and I can walk down any street in the town and while we're walking down it, the idea of sin never crosses our minds. But Jesus, he wasn't like that. He was sensitive to it. He just saw it. And of course, he also saw sufferings. And we see some sufferings, but we're not aware of many of the sufferings that people have. But that couldn't be said about Jesus. He just knew it was happening. He knew what was behind every door. And it always affected him, the man of sorrows. So that's how they sort of saw him in verse 3. He was embarrassing because they said, we hid our face from him. He just embarrassed us. 
We tried not to catch his eye. But in verse 4, things change. They speak about his sorrows, but they say something different about them. He say in verse 4 that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So it's become personal. I mean, it has been personal all the way through. In this song, this prophecy, I mean, they have thought about him in Nazareth in the verse in verse 2 for he grew up before him like a young plant there he is as a child and as a teenager a young plant in Nazareth very uncongenial territory to plant anything was Nazareth can anything good come out of Nazareth said Nathaniel, the man in whom there was no guile. Always spoke the truth. That's what Nathaniel was like, and that was what Jesus said about him. The man whom there's no guile. He lived six miles from Nazareth in Cana. And he seems to be completely unaware of the presence of Jesus in Nazareth. Otherwise, you'll never have asked that question. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? But there he was, a root out of dry ground. Don't normally get roots growing in dry ground. But it did in Nazareth, in that very unexpected location. He just grew up. And as it says there in verse 2, he didn't grow up before the people of Nazareth, although they saw him, but he grew up before God the Father. And he was delighted with what he saw in these 30 silent years, silent in the sense that we know very little about them, but we know what God the Father thought about it because when he, Jesus appeared for his baptism, the Father tore heaven open. And that kind of indicates his eagerness to give his opinion. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was his opinion of the 30 silent years. But the opinion of those who saw him was he's got no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. They are the exact opposite view of what God said. And something's brought about the change. And we'll think about that later on. Now the song begins, as we noticed, with verse 13, with a command. 
And the command in verse 13 of chapter 52 is, Behold my servant. Which is kind of a strange command. I mean, it's not just the people in Nazareth who look at him. It's not even just God the Father that looks at him. But we are told to look at him. So that's what the word behold means, isn't it? Behold him. Just look at him. So when we come to verse 4, we're to look at him as he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. And the idea is to take a good, long, close look at him. Just like us to think about identification. That's the first point. And then, what was he carrying? What is meant by our griefs and our sorrows? And then thirdly, some examples of him doing so. And then lastly, the significance. Well, identification. Well, I suppose the reality is that servants are usually carrying something. They may have to carry it for a long time. Someone could say to them, take this down to so-and-so. Might be a short walk with whoever it is in the partial, or it may be a long um, journey for the servant but he'd be carrying something wouldn't he that's just part of his identification if he wasn't carrying anything it would be a good possibility he wasn't a servant and if we saw what this person was carrying we could work out what kind of servant he was if we happen to see one carrying some meat, for example, we could assume he was the servant of the butcher. Or if we saw the man carrying some produce, we could assume he was a servant of a farmer. It was just quite easy to identify the person's task by the burden he was carrying. And we can see here that they identified what this servant was carrying. The only thing about this particular servant is he's just not carrying one person's box. We want to put it that way. He's not just carrying one person's parcel. He's carrying whoever the speakers are. He's carrying all their griefs and all their sorrows. And he just seems to be carrying them whenever they see him. It's in fact 
They never see him without the burdens. It's a rather um, unusual sight, isn't it? I mean, most servants had some time off. But this servant had no time off. Day and night, he's carrying the burden. They do, they do notice where the destination of his journey is. He's heading to the place where he's going to be wounded for transgressions, where he's going to be crushed for iniquities. And we might think, well, since that's his destination, maybe he's sad about his prospects. But that's not why they say he's burdened. Although he's heading towards this terrible location where he's going to be wounded and crushed. What he's carrying is what makes him sorrowful. He's going to the cross. So whatever's meant by these griefs and sorrows happens before the cross. There was no personal connection initially with these speakers who are ever speaking, who's speaking in verse 4, but they've come to realize that it's got to do with them. He's identified with them. And he identified with them before they realized it. the servant. What was he carrying? I think it's important to work that one out. And the way to do that is to consider the words that are used. He bore our griefs. The word grief there means physical diseases. He bore our physical diseases in some way. The word bore means to carry them away. Somehow or other, he's going to make them disappear. Then he carried our sorrows. The word there translated sorrows means mental pain. The things that distress us and disturb us. 
And carry means he felt the weight. He wasn't carrying a wee box. This combination of details that he was on his shoulders, we might say, he felt it. And since these are the meanings of the words, we have to say to ourselves, when did Jesus carry diseases before the cross? Because that's the order, isn't it? He's doing this before he goes to the cross. When was he stressed? Before the cross. And the idea behind sorrows means that the burden bearer has sympathy. Sympathy for those whose troubles he's carrying. And it's a kind of repeated activity. His sympathy for them made him do this often. This is due with his life. The life he lived before he went to the cross. What was it like? Well, we read in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, Matthew says that verse 4 of Isaiah 53 was fulfilled in what happened in Matthew chapter 8. So these are examples of what's been spoken about in Isaiah chapter 4. Sorry, 53 verse 4. So we can just think of the examples. What is in Matthew chapter 8? Well, there's four examples given. There's the leper. The leper comes to Jesus and says to him, if you're willing, you can. He doesn't say, heal me. You can cleanse me. As far as the leper was concerned, his particular illness defiled him. Defiled him in the outlook of the ceremonial law. And therefore he knew that if he was healed, he would be cleansed. Simultaneously. But he comes to Jesus and asks him for that. And then we have the centurion and his servant. 
and his servant is lying at home, unable to move. And the servant asks Jesus to heal him. And as we know, Jesus volunteers to go to the man's house. And the man says to him, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and it will happen. And Jesus says to about him, I've never seen such faith in Israel. And maybe one reason for that is they hadn't paid attention to Isaiah 53. And then there's Peter's mother-in-law. Mark tells us that they told Jesus about her. And he went and healed her. And then on the evening of that day in, in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17, we're told... That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Matthew has grouped together four examples. <clears throat> if we didn't know otherwise, we would think the four of them happened on the same day. But they didn't. The only ones that happened on the same day were the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and the crowd that came to the house afterwards. The time when the leper was healed and the time when the centurion's servant was healed took place at other occasions. But Matthew has grouped them all together because he wants to tell us something. He wants to tell us that during his three years of public ministry, Jesus fulfilled what was said in Isaiah 53, verse 4. And Isaiah, as Matthew translates it is, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. these people. And as we look at the four examples that Matthew has, all of them have got certain things, two things in common. And the things they have in common is that each of them were healed immediately and each of them was healed completely. It's quite extraordinary. No difference whatever the illness was. Jesus just removed it. And that's what one of the words means, isn't it? In Isaiah 53, verse 4, to bear it away. It's gone. As far as these individuals was concerned. And of course, as we saw, one of the other words meant distress and we can imagine the distress and the concern that these people had can't we 
we can see the distress that the leper had, ostracized. We can see the distress of the Roman centurion about his servant. Who's going to carry their sorrows? We can see the concern that the family of Peter had for his mother-in-law. And apparently the word that's used to describe her problem kind of meant it was rushing towards her, crushing her. And all about that multitude that turned up at the house that night in, in there in Capernaum, every one of them had real concerns and stress. And who felt all of it? Jesus. He was prepared to do a lot to help people. And of course his sympathy and his intensity of concern was there even though he healed them. And of course we all know the best example of that. When he went to the tomb of Lazarus, I mean, Jesus didn't go to the tomb of Lazarus in order to perform an amazing act that people would stand at and marvel and be overwhelmed. He went there because he cared. And even when he arrived at Bethany, we're told twice by John that Jesus felt. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. But surely he knows that within two minutes' time he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he greatly troubled? Because Isaiah 53 verse 4 said he would feel. And he can't get rid of his feelings just because he knows that in a couple of minutes time he's going to perform a great miracle. And then they yes, where have you laid him? That's what he says after being greatly troubled, where have you laid him? And they say to him, Lord, come and see. And when he gets to the tomb, we're told about him, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It's almost as if he couldn't take a step without feeling the intensity of the moment. the deep concerns that people had. And it's not too surprising, is it, that these people who had watched him going to the cross, because that's what's happening in Isaiah 53, verse 4, he's heading to the cross. 
and they are watching him, being affected by their illnesses and by their inner sorrows. And they're watching him, as far as some of these illnesses are concerned, he just takes them away. Just like that. And yet at the same, same time, he's carrying their sorrows. He feels it. How often did Jesus do this? On the way to the cross. <clears throat> well, here's what Matthew tells us. In Matthew chapter 4, he says this. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. That's one reference in Matthew chapter 4. Then in Matthew chapter 12, he says this, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them. Oh, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. That's two references. Then in Matthew chapter 14, Matthew says this, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. In Matthew chapter 15, he says this, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seen, and they glorified the God of Israel. And in Matthew 19, it says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And then in Matthew chapter 21 it says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Do, do we see what Isaiah 53, 4 is saying? that through his years of public ministry, as he was making his way to the cross, this was his activity. That he engaged in removing people's illnesses. And at the same time, felt their burden. His sympathy made him do a lot, didn't it? No one knows how many were helped in this way by him. Multitudes and multitudes. And the extraordinary thing about his activity in this regard is that it looks as if he did them all one by one. 
every single one of them, with all their inner tension and turmoil and fears and distress. He dealt with them personally. And they realized it. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The hour there is not you and me. The hour there is those who saw him on his way to the cross. A ministry of incredible compassion. And it's all for a reason. And that leads us to think of the significance of it. Why was he doing all this? As we noted, he did it on the way to the cross. And all these things that he did, these activities, they were the confirmation that he was the Messiah. This was the evidence that was given to them. When John the Baptist sent messengers to Jesus, asking him if he was the Messiah, what did Jesus say to them? What was the message he gave to be given to John? Well, he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Every day, it seems to be the case, for three years, the people of Israel saw Isaiah 53, verse 4, lived out before their eyes. What an extraordinary display that the Messiah has come. There he is. And John the Baptist was reminded, it's happening. So confirmed he was the Messiah. These um, incredible cures that he did they pointed to people that he had power over the kingdom of darkness. And all these lists of characters who are brought to him for help, the number who are demon-possessed is very high. Some people imagine that there was a concerted attempt by the enemy to destroy Jesus. Whether that's the case or not, who can say? 
But what we can definitely say is that every time Jesus told one of these demons to go, they went. He just did it. Here was one walking around Israel with incredible power. Such power that the kingdom of darkness trembled in front of him. So these cures, miracles that he was doing declared to those who had eyes to see He's come. The deliverer has arrived. It also tells us the extent of his compassion, doesn't it? On all these 365 days for three years, Who did he turn away? Not one. Imagine that situation in Capernaum where all these people turned up at Peter's door. Jesus didn't say to them, I've had a hard day. He didn't say to them, come back tomorrow. Nor did he say to them, I'll take you in groups. His compassion He saw into their burdened, weary, distressed hearts and gave them all personal comfort. Psalm 103, they all could have sung it on the way home, couldn't they? In their case, it was all literal. He has healed their diseases. signs that he'd arrived. There were also pictures of the bigness of salvation. He has come to provide salvation. But what does his salvation mean? What's it going to be like to be fully saved? Well, we could say that throughout his public ministry, he gave living examples of what the great outcome is going to be. The great outcome is not that for every day for three years, he dealt with all these crowds that were coming to him. Wonderful though they were. 
But they were pictures that salvation involves the body as well as the soul. That they were reminders that ahead of those who trust in him is an endless world of perfection. A perfection that will include their bodies as well as their souls. For all the effects of sin will be gone. And where there will be no more worries. And where peace will reign. Not merely the absence of distress. But the presence of perfection. And that's what Isaiah 53.4 is all about. The signs that he did before the cross pointed to what's going to happen after the cross when the fullness of salvation will be provided. I was reading a sermon Spurgeon preached on these verses. I just thought I would quote what he said. Jesus means to bless the body as well as the soul. And though for this present time he has left our body very much under the power of sickness, for still the body is dead because of sin and the spirit is life because of righteousness. Yet he foreshadows in his healing miracles the resurrection, when he shall raise us perfectly healed and the inhabitant shall no more say, I am sick. Every restored limb, opened eye, and healed wound is a token that Jesus cares for our flesh and blood and means that the body shall share the benefits of his death by a glorious resurrection. Ever imagine the resurrection day? You know, we've never seen a perfect human being. The best that we've seen is imperfect, imperfect. But the day is coming when billions and billions will be totally perfect, perfect forever. This confession that's made here by these people in Isaiah chapter 4, what a sight they saw. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Why is he so sad? Because he's taking sadness away. Isn't it? Why is he the man of sorrows? Because he's going to create a world in which there's no sorrow. And for that to happen, he had to go to the cross. 
But on the way to the cross, he gave repeated examples of his great power. He doesn't tell us just to look back when we're asked to behold the servant. We're asked to behold what the servant's going to do in the future when he brings into existence the perfect world. Shall we pray? Lord, we can't fully understand the depths of feeling that Jesus had. We can Imagine to some extent the sense of release and relief that those he helped had. But Jesus was a man on a mission. The mission will not be finished until the resurrection day. We thank you that he went to the cross in order to guarantee it would happen. And we thank you too that on his way to the cross, as Matthew tells us, Jesus fulfilled that prediction from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4, that he bore away their illnesses and carried within his heart their sorrow. Help us, Lord, to admire such a Savior, one who, as we're told, is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Lord, help us to be encouraged by a Savior who cares for us as whole persons and will one day make those who trust in him glorified forever. So, Lord, remember us for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm 17 and sing Psalms, verses 14 to 15. The tune is Zenka. Save me by your right hand from all such people, Lord, from mortal men who in this life will have their sole reward. Verses 14 and 15.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.